welcome to the Hunt Pack Country Podcast. This is episode number 438. And today we're kicking off somewhat of a new series. These episodes may not release sequentially, but over the next couple of months, I wanted to speak with as many of the Western states as possible and speak with their game and fish departments directly. Now, we're not going to hit every state. We did focus on the states that provide both resident and reasonable non-resident hunting opportunities, and this obviously are the more popular states across our broad audience. Not all states are willing to participate. We've been trying to schedule some states that are unresponsive or somewhat unwilling to join us, but a huge thank you to the states who are willing to do this, and there's quite a few to come. Today, in this first episode, we're speaking with Wyoming. For each of these episodes, I had some kind of common questions or topics to talk about, specifically around the application process, some clarifications on things like their point systems and more. And then we also asked you guys, the audience, to submit your questions for each state specifically. So a good portion of these conversations may look different for, say, today's show with Wyoming compared to a future show for Arizona or New Mexico or Idaho. Because again, we are tailoring the questions to the specific audience questions that you had for that state in particular. Of course, a usual caveat, we can't get into every topic in an hour. We only have so much time. So we did try to balance going in-depth on certain things and also not getting too lost in the weeds. But I am really happy with how these episodes have turned out. As always, guys, we do appreciate your feedback. If you have anything for us, including questions or suggestions for future shows, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And if you're enjoying the show, it does help us if you leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you are using. We do all of this for free. We do not have advertisers or sponsors so that we can remain independent. And so we truly do appreciate the support of you guys listening to the show. If you can leave a rating or review, please hit pause and do that right now in your podcast app. Then come on back and let's dive into this conversation with Wyoming Game and Fish. Well, Regina and Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. To start with, um, just to give listeners some context for who you are and what you do with Wyoming Game and Fish, Um, Jennifer, if we can start with you, just what your role is, maybe some of what your background, whatever you want to share. So my name is Jennifer Doring. I'm the licensed section manager for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, which means I manage all licensed sales for the Wyoming Game and Fish, including all of the limited quota draws. And I've been in this position for just over 10 years. And my background is I have a wildlife management degree. And so I do have um, that experience and background as well, as well as a master's in business administration. How about for you, Regina? My name is Regina Dixon, and I'm the public information specialist out of the Green River region in Southwest Wyoming. Um, I have been employed with the game and fish department in a lot of different capacities since 2011. I started in the aquatic invasive species program. I worked seven years as an office manager. And then the last two years, I have been the public information specialist. 
I, like Jennifer, have a bachelor's degree in environmental resource management and a master's in organizational management. So it's a little bit about me. Awesome. Jennifer, I'm curious. You mentioned you've been in this role or position for about 10 years. Um, is, if you look at those 10 years, what do you feel like is a big change or trend or just something that stands out of now versus 10 years ago? I would say just the demand for licensing um, for our big game species and the passion of our customers has grown. Uh, when I came over here, we had high de demand for limited quota licenses, all elk, deer, antelope, moose, sheep, mountain goat, and bison. And I've just seen that trend continue to grow in those 10 years as well as the passion of our customers. Our customers are very passionate about wildlife, um, wildlife resources, and that's just continued to grow and flourish through my 10 years. And then the other thing I would say is technology advancements has helped tremendously in helping our customers in those 10 years as well. The department has worked really hard to make purchasing licenses, applying for licenses, and the information we provide to our customers better and throughout those 10 years as well. We can go so many different directions today. We have uh, some topics uh, that I wanted to make sure we covered on licensing and applications. And, you know, some of that will not be new for some listeners, but um, there's more and more hunters every year and people who maybe have some misconceptions even about like Wyoming specifically. So we'll get into that and then we did have um, some listeners submitted questions as well, and we're going to do our best to get to as much of that as possible. But to begin with, can you just like a super high level 30,000 foot view on kind of the application season and timing for, um, you know, most of these big game licensings? Like from a 30,000 foot view, what does the year look like if someone wants to come to Wyoming in 2024 in the fall and hunt, you know, deer, elk, antelope? That's a great question. So from a 30,000 foot level, customers need to start planning their hunt today if they want to hunt in the fall of 2024. So our application system for elk, deer, and antelope, as well as other species, open always the first business day of the new year. So this year, that will be January 2nd of 2024. And we take applications um, for most species. Um, for non-residents, elk does end the last day of January. So January 31st is the deadline to get a non-resident elk application into the system for the limited quota draw. And then deer and antelope for non-residents is May 31st. Our resident deadline for elk, deer, and antelope is also May 31st. So it is important. Um, we have high demand for our limited quota licenses and all of those species that hunters, if they want to hunt in the fall, get their application in during that time frame, um, whichever deadlines that they are applying for. Um, we do have... Um, some licenses that are undersubscribed in the limited quota draw, and those do go into our leftover draw, which is always the last week of June. But I always tell customers, if you want to hunt and you want to hunt in the areas that are your first choice, apply in the limited quota draw. And so 
Um, make sure they're aware of those deadlines. The big one is non-resident elk is January 31st. Deer and antelope for non-residents is May 31st. Some of the other coveted species, moose, sheep, mountain goat, and wild bison have an April 30th deadline, which is actually a new deadline this year. But it is important that they get those applications in if they're looking to hunt this year in the fall. And so someone in January could submit the application for all those species, even though they may have different deadlines. Is that correct? That is correct, with the exception of our wild bison. Our wild bison application actually doesn't open it's one of the ones that doesn't open till March 1st. And that reasoning is we still have hunting seasons for the 23 season going on in January. And we need to get that, that data into the system and recorded before customers start applying. So the wild bison application period actually opens March 1st, but all of the rest of those species I just mentioned opens January 2nd this year. Obviously, Wyoming is a state uh, most folks know that has a point system. And can you just talk? I I still think there's confusion at times about how points work in different states and not, you know, that a point means the same thing in, you know, Wyoming versus Montana uh, versus Nevada. But can you just talk really quickly about how points work in Wyoming? Meaning, is it a bonus point, a preference point? How how do points come into play in the draw? And then are there also allocated tags that aren't part of the point pool? Sure. So in Wyoming, we have a preference point system. So we have a preference point system for moose and bighorn sheep. And for non-residents, we also have a preference point system for elk, deer, and antelope. And a customer can purchase or be awarded, um, depending on the situation and the species, a preference point for each of those species each year with some caveats to that. So I'm going to talk about moose and bighorn sheep first. That is a preference point draw. 75% of the allocated tags for residents and non-residents, so 75% of each allocation, goes into a preference point draw. And in those draws, the number of preference points a customer has is the number of points they go into the draw for those 75% of the tag allocation. Those tags are allocated based on the highest number of preference points in that draw and then the lowest random number. The other 25% of those licenses in either in the resident or non-resident draw are strictly a random draw. So that's where customers who don't have any points or who didn't draw in the preference point draw can then also pick up a license in that random draw portion. One misconception that we get a lot of customer comments on is if I have preference points, does that mean I don't participate in the random draw? And that is not true. If you do not draw in the preference point draw, your application goes in with a different random number into the random draw. So if you don't draw on the preference point, you basically, if you have preference points, get to go through the draw twice. And the other question is, is if you don't have preference points, does your application participate in the preference point draw? And it draw, it does participate in that draw as well. You just have zero preference points. And so as a non-resident, when you submit your moose and sheep application, you can elect to be awarded a preference point if you're unsuccessful 
or you can elect to not be awarded a preference point. And so if you elect, if a customer elects to be awarded a preference point, if they're unsuccessful at the end of that draw, we will award them that respective species preference point for that year. Our elk, deer, and antelope for non-residents works very similarly. 75% um, of the license allocation to non-residents goes into the preference point portion of each of the respective draws. So for elk, deer, and antelope, we have a special draw, which um, customers apply and pay a premium fee on top of the regular license application fee. And, and a portion of that draw quota, 75% of that goes to the preference point draw. And then in the regular draw, which is just the regular fee, 75% of that license quota goes into the preference point draw. What makes elk, deer, and antelope a little bit different is customers can apply as a party. And so if they apply as an individual, they go through the draw very similar to the moose and bighorn sheep. If they go in as a party, we average the party points of all members of that party, and they go through that draw with the party average. Once again, we award licenses based on the highest number of points, lowest random number. And the same thing applies. You, Every applicant participates in the preference point draw, even if they have zero points, and every unsuccessful applicant participates in the random portion of that draw, that other 25% if they don't draw in the preference point draw. Elk, deer, and antelope non-residents do not have the option to be awarded a point at the end of the draw. They have to come back between July 1 and October 31st and purchase a preference point as well as customers who didn't apply for a bighorn sheep or moose license, that application period for preference points is also July 1 to October 31. A customer cannot purchase a elk deer or antelope preference point in the year they draw their first choice. So if they draw their first choice, they um, all of their points are set to history and they're ineligible to purchase a point in that same year. So they would have to delay buying a point and starting occurring points again for till the next year. And preference points for elk, deer, and antelope only apply to a customer's first choice application, hunt area and type. Okay. There's a lot in there, but man, that was helpful. I'm curious, this is maybe a random and maybe I'm just not thinking of it. You mentioned on like say the the sheep application, for example, that you can choose whether or not to be awarded a preference point if you're unsuccessful. Why would you not? What would you look to not receive a preference point? So we had a lot of our customers contact our office and say that based on the number of points that it takes to draw in the preference point draw, that they knew that they would not, either based on age or just their application history, not be able to accrue enough points. And they wanted to only participate, basically, they knew they were only participating in that 25% random draw portion. Got it. And so they didn't want to have to pay $150 a year for a preference point. They just wanted to really participate in that random draw portion of the draw. And so we implemented and passed through commission regulation that they can elect to not be awarded that point. The other part of that is for Moose, we have a type four license, which is included in the preference point draw. And we have customers who just want to 
apply for that type four license. If they get it, great. If they don't, that's fine. But they didn't want to accrue preference points on that either. So we elected to have that option for them to elect to, to be awarded a point or not be elected. And so it was really customer service to answer requests we had from our customers. That's great. Was that a recent and by recent, I mean, it could have been five years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, but do you have a rough idea of when that change was made that you don't have to purchase that preference point or be awarded that preference point? I believe that was three years ago, two or three years ago. So it's more recent. It's a more recent change. I partially bring that up because there's there tends to be so much, you know, complainers tend to be loud, right? And it's not often said enough when there are good things. And this is like a great example of you guys listening to customers who have a, um, I think, a very realistic request and but just because the, it is a realistic request, as you said, it, it's not easy to change regulations. You have to go through commission. You have to, you know, um, follow all these protocols and make changes. And just want to say, here's a perfect example of all the critics and skeptics who would just say, all these states are just in it for money and they just want my preference point money. Well, they listen to the customers at this point and aren't forcing them to pay that 100 and whatever you said, 125, $150 every year. You can just purely enter into the random. So just want to highlight the positive because all the negative tends to be what is uh, most vocalized. Yeah, that's why we did it. We wanted to, as you said, we do listen to our customers and there's times we can make changes. and, And this was one we felt was valuable to take through the commission because preference points are $150 each time they want to apply. And we recognize that not all customers want to accumulate those points. They just want to, I want to participate in the draw. I know I won't draw it in the preference point draw with no points, but I want to participate in that random draw. And it was important to listen to those customers and make those changes where we can. One of the misconceptions I think I've seen mentioned online especially in the last i think it's been two years now maybe i could be wrong on that time frame but there were some changes to non-resident tag allocation for certain species um and i think it was more broadly misunderstood by some to think that that tag allocation applied to other species such as deer and elk when from my understanding there hadn't been uh, an allocation change for non-residents so can you speak to that or was that too vague and I need to be more specific? So going into the application period in 2023, the prior year, the Wyoming legislature did pass a bill that made a change to the license allocation for moose, bighorn sheep, mountain goat, wild bison, as well as grizzly bear, if and when or whenever Wyoming can have hunting seasons, those Um, as everybody knows, are under federal listing, but it is part of that statute. So that change was made to those five species to change the non-resident allocation of licenses to a 90-10 allocation. And so in 2023, that was the first limited quota draw for four of those species that we did with that new allocation of licenses at that 90% of the licenses go to residents and 10% of them go to non-residents. 
There was, and I have heard comments of a lot of people thinking that applied to elk, deer, and antelope, and it did not apply to elk, deer, and antelope. The allocation, license allocation has stayed the same for deer and antelope, and that's 80% of those licenses go to residents and 20% of them go to non-residents. And then for elk, that allocation for elk is 84% to residents, 16% to non-residents. But there has been a change that will go into place in 2024, which I think is very important for your listeners to know for non-resident elk. Previously, commission regulation indicated that the department had to issue 7,250 full-price non-resident elk licenses, which included the non-resident general elk license. Through commission regulation last year, they re- the commission approved a change to remove the cap of the 7,250 license allocation, and they have created the department created non-resident elk regions. So going forward, it will be 84%, 16% allocation, just as it has been in the past for limited quota elk licenses. And then the department has three non-resident elk regions, which is the Western elk region, the Eastern elk region, and the Southern elk region. And the commission will approve quota, license quota for those regions similar to deer where 100% of that will be non-resident. So there is a change in how non-resident general licenses for elk are issued beginning in 2024. I don't, this may be opening up a can of worms and maybe it's very simple. I'm not sure. Within that, and this is changing topics, but highlighting some words you mentioned, you mentioned at one point legislature, you mentioned commission and department. I'm curious are those at all interchangeable? Are those three separate entities? And like, can you give us a 30,000 foot view of like kind of the operation of Wyoming Game and Fish, but then also how regulation changes happen that's outside of what I think would be the, the quote unquote department of Wyoming Game and Fish? Is that a fair question? It is a fair question. So they are three very distinct separate Operating bodies, I guess you would say in big 30,000 terms. Um, So the Wyoming state legislature um, passes rules, um, state statutes for all of Wyoming laws. Um, And Wyoming Game and Fish Department does have laws that are approved by the Wyoming state legislature. And there are laws in there that the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission, as well as the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, have to follow those state statutes. And when I was mentioning the five species that the allocation was changed from 90% to um, 90-10 from the previous allocation, those allocations are spelled out in Wyoming state statutes. So when customers or the department or the commission Or in this instance, the governor had created a Wyoming Wildlife Task Force to look at licensing, propose those changes. They actually have to go through the Wyoming state legislature to be changed. And so that's how rules are done through the Wyoming um, state legislature. With that, the department also has has to fall under the per- falls under the purview of the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission. So all of our chapter regulations, so licensing is chapter 44, 
commission approved regulations. So anytime and all of the other tag allocations, so elk, deer, and antelope are under Wyoming commission. Anytime the department or you know something comes through customers, as I said about the allocation to purchase a preference point for moose and sheep, when we want to make that change, it has to go as draft rules through the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission, as well as a public process. We have public meetings. There's state rules that say we have to solicit public comment. And all of those changes have to go through the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission and be approved. And the department presents them to the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission for approval. And then the Wyoming Depart Game and Fish Department implements those rules from the commission and the state legislature. So my operating direction of how that licensing allocates and how we conduct draws is all outlined in Wyoming, Wyoming Game and Fish Commission rules and Wyoming state statute. That's helpful. Thank you. You mentioned recent changes. I did just want to ask more broadly, are there any either new for 2024 or recent changes that maybe aren't fully understood or have misconceptions just in general about licensing, tag acquisition, et cetera? Uh, so super kind of open-ended to like, hey, make sure that you have this opportunity to tell us as customers what we need to know. Yeah, there are a couple things that, um, as I mentioned, that are new for um, 2024 application period. Um, the first one is the creation of those non-resident elk regions that I spoke of um, for generals. So the department worked through pu public process, input from the public. We had a Wyoming Game and Fish Commission regulation change to implement those non-resident elk regions. And so a non-resident elk applicant will no longer apply for a general elk license that gives them the ability to hunt in any general season across the state. They will have to pick a region. Those regions are the Eastern region, the Western region, and the Southern region. And then within those areas, there are the general areas that they would be able to hunt in those areas. Um, the other change that's coming for 2024 is we did have through our Wyoming state legislature, some changes made to the fee structure of some of the non-resident licenses, specifically the bighorn sheep, mountain goat, moose, and wild bison. Fees have went up for non-residents and then the fees for the special fee for the special elk, special deer, and special antelope, that fee also increased. And so those fee increases will go into effect in 2024 as well. Um, the other one I mentioned is previously the um, application date for moose, bighorn, sheep, wild bison, and mountain goat previously closed in the middle of April. That application date has been changed and they actually close now April 30th, which that was another request from our constituents that we were able to implement through commission regulation to give them a longer application period, as well as see the final seasons approved, hunting seasons approved by the Wyoming Game and Fish Commission before their applications were due. So those are the major changes coming in 2024 for customer applications. Those elk regions, um, 
is there a different quota assigned to those three different regions then for non-residents? Like the total number of non-resident tags and like the Eastern versus Western region, is that like a different cap or quota? Yes. So each of those regions currently has a proposed quota that was approved at the commission by the commission, really just to give applicants an idea, those quotas will actually be approved. The final license quotas will actually be approved at the April commission meeting when they approve the non, when they approve the elk regulation seasons for 2024. But it was important that there was a proposed quota out there um, that applicants could see what those quotas would look like before they started applying in January. And then if you draw a tag for, say, the Eastern Elk region, you then can hunt any of the um, any of the units within that region that aren't under special draw. Is that essentially the way it works? Yes. Yeah, so they can hunt any of the areas that have a general season within that Eastern region. Um, they just would not be able to hunt any of the limited quota areas in that Eastern region in your example. All right. I think that's a, that's a, I mean, we could talk for hours, I'm sure about all the nuances and intricacies of, uh, you know, applications and strategies and different species, et cetera. I, I guess to ask, there's, there's so many questions that hunters can have at times and they turn to a resource such as like, say, go hunt or hunt and fool, which is all great and good. But if a hunter listening to this has a question, maybe something they very specifically thought of or we didn't address uh, based on this conversation, what's the, can they just reach out to Wyoming Game and Fish? Is a phone call best, an email best? Is there a, a certain way to direct that type of question of, hey, I want to apply for this, or I have a question about applying for this? Yeah, so my answer to that is actually threefold. Um, the first place I would direct them is to our Wyoming Game and Fish website. Um, the department has a hunt planner that answers a lot of their questions. Um, the department has done a really good job trying to make sure our website provides answers to any of those questions our hunters would have. So that would be the first resource I would encourage them to use. I also encourage them to use it just to plan their hunt as well. As you mentioned, can they pick up the phone and give us a call? Absolutely. Um, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department has a customer service line that's open eight to five. So just our standard business hours, Mountain Standard Time, eight to five, that they can contact call us. And we have customer service representatives available to answer their call. One caveat that I will say is applicants should plan and apply earlier. If they wait till the last minute, our call volume um, drastically increases and it can be a little bit of a wait to get in. Um, I supervise that section as well. And in the month of May, we answer over 10,000 customer calls in the month of May. So the earlier you can get on and give us a call, great. Um, but we always look forward to answering customer calls. And then the third option is there is a place on our website that says contact us and they can actually send an email that we also answer as well. And then another great resource is any of our eight regional offices. Um, just as Regina on this call, a lot of our regional offices, our public information offices, 
Officers can also answer a ton of those calls. So in the department, we have lots of resources for our customers to get a hold of us and ask those questions. Regina, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Just that we'd much re- prefer that you get your information from the game and fish and not necessarily from third-party sources because rules change a lot and in order to get the most accurate information, it's really important that you rely on straight from the source on Game and Fish, whether that be our website or by contacting some uh, some of the offices. And we are more than happy to help. I constantly hear from customers on the phone that we're just pleasant to talk to. So we appreciate it. But I also couldn't agree more with Jennifer about call now. Um call as soon as you have a question because even our regional offices will become overwhelmed when it deadlines approach and our customers in the building are priority number one so sometimes we can't even get to the phone on a deadline day just also like to echo what regina mentioned about getting information from the game and fish just some of the prior questions you ask um licensing in wyoming is complicated and very complex. And it is important that our customers get that information from Wyoming Game and Fish. As Regina mentioned, our rules change every year. And we want our customers to have the the accurate, best information they can get to make decisions. Transitioning to some listener questions, I just put it out there of, hey, we're going to do this podcast with Wyoming Game and Fish. Like, What are some of the questions and topics that our listeners wanted to hear about. And of course, we had a a ton of responses more than we can cover. But I tried to pick some that I think were uh, that came up more than once, Um, you know, that that there seemed to be more demand for or that I also just kind of personally see talk about, you know, amongst hunters. Um, One of those is just kind of some information on, you know, Wyoming is unique in this regulation about non-residents not being allowed to hunt in wilderness areas on their own anyway. Um, and so I just love to hear more about that, the history of that, maybe some of the reasoning behind that. Um, I've just never really heard it discussed from anyone other than non-resident hunters who complain about it. (laughs) Okay. So Um, That rule is in state statute, which means that was created by our Wyoming legislature, um, which are our elected lawmaking body in Wyoming. And that statute has been in effect for longer than my wildlife supervisor has been employed since the 1980s. I don't know exactly when. So it would be impossible to know what the reasoning was when they put that law into place. But as state law directs and informs how we work as an agency, um, we have to implement the regulations that align with our state laws. Um, Non-residents are allowed to hunt game birds and small games in wilderness areas, but not big game or trophy game. So think antlers, claws, and teeth with those big and trophy game animals. Um, Another thing that really people get confused about is they think they have to pay for a licensed guide or outfitter, which is not necessarily true. They can get any resident of Wyoming who also has a big game license to sign up as a resident guide. Um, That resident guide cannot take any compensation 
um, for taking those or, you know, hosting a non-resident to go hunt in the wilderness. But as far as the reason why that law exists, I really do not know. So you mentioned that non, or sorry, the resident who may accompany a non-resident. It's not as simple as, you know, I know Steve, he lives in Wyoming. He also has uh, a license and we can go hunt together. You mentioned if if I heard correctly that Steve would have to register as in some way to say, hey, Mark's from out of state. I'm going to accompany him on this hunt into this wilderness area. Steve's going to have to accept re- responsibility and get what we call a resident guide license, which are free. Um, they can get those at regional offices. They used to do handwritten ones, but I don't think there's so much of that anymore. Jennifer, you can jump in here if I'm mistaken on that one. But it's as simple as coming in and saying, hey, I want to take Mark elk hunting with me. And he just needs your first and last name and what elk license is. They do kind of have to match up. Like he'd have to have an elk license to take you elk hunting or a deer license to take you deer hunting, if that makes any sense. Grizzly bears came up before as you were talking about regulations and obviously uh, there's federal limitations on hunting them, but uh, Wyoming is clearly one of the states that has had, uh, I think, an increasing number of grizzly bear encounters with hunters, uh, to mm-hmm. put it, I think, mildly. Um, just to recap, and I know a lot of this becomes, you know, uh, repetitive information, but just any kind of recap on breast best practices for hunting in grizzly country and is there i think what i'm more interested in is there a a resource that is up to date and or tracking grizzly bear populations so if a a non-resident hunter is looking at hunting wyoming and they're wondering like oh if i hunt this this unit or this tag like is that an area where grizzly bears are known to inhabit um and I guess how how um, how fluid is that situation of population dynamics among bears over the last handful of years? I, th- I know I threw a lot at you, but sure. So first, I'll start with you know the best practices if you are hunting in grizzly bear country is to not hunt by yourself, especially after you get an animal down. That's when your risk of encountering or crossing a bear um, really increases because they can smell those animals from a long ways away. So while you're field dressing your animal is when you're going to be most vulnerable because you have a lot of work to do and you have to focus Um, So you're going to want somebody else there who can be a lookout while you're field dressing your animal. Um, You should always carry bear spray and have it strapped to the outside of your body. I like to carry mine in a chest holster or strap it to your hip because it's not going to do you any good if it's tucked inside of your backpack and then you have to think and act quickly Um, You also want to know how to deploy your bear spray. Um, It's absolutely okay if you want to carry a sidearm, but um, in a high panic situation, your accuracy with a handgun is not going to be very good, no matter how good you are. So if you're going to rely on a sidearm for self-defense, you definitely need to be proficient with that firearm and just be prepared 
but I, I can't emphasize enough that bear spray is proven to work on anything that has mucous membranes. So um, the other thing, obviously you want to keep a clean camp. Um, you know, a lot of the times when you're in grizzly country, you're up in the back country and there's no way to get your critter out in a day's time. Um, so if you have to store meat and food, you want to make sure they're away from your sleeping area by at least a hundred yards. And you want to have those down or upwind so they'd find the food first and then not be able to be attracted into your camping spot. Um, you don't want to keep anything that's going to attract a bear in your tent or your sleeping area. So you don't want to cook where you're sleeping. Um, now, as far as where grizzly bears are, their range is expanding, but you can think the whole northwestern corner of Wyoming around the Yellowstone National Park, around Cody, we do have grizzly bears. Um, their population is doing really well and they are expanding. I don't know if we have a range map up, but we do have... Um, you could call our large carnivore section or reach out to the regional office if you're thinking about planning a hunt and we'd be happy to let you know what the risk of potentially counting a, in a grizzly bear while you're hunting is. There was uh, numerous questions that fell under, I think, a broader category of some sort of update on the population of herds. Um, whether that's, you know, elk, deer, antelope, you know, most people are interested in, in those species primarily. Um, several of those questions, you know, were in response to some of the winter, um, tough winters that have happened um, very recently and then within the recent history here. So I know that a lot of that um, falls more to biologists than to, than you guys, but what can you speak to, I guess, and what are some of the, you know, maybe highlights of of the status of some herd updates and or maybe even regulatory changes that have happened because of that? Sure. Um, last winter, 2022 to 23, was one of the worst winters, definitely in recent Wyoming history, but maybe in all of Wyoming history. And it was devastating to our deer and antelope populations, especially in Western Wyoming, where I am here in Green River, um, some of the critters that were able to get down further south um, fared better, but most definitely we lost um, in our sublet antelope herd, which that's the one that, you know, summers up in Teton and then migrates as far south down here to I-80 every year. We lost about half of that herd um, during the winter. There were a few pneumonia outbreaks on top of the incredible snowpack um, and our deer populations were also hit very hard. We are actually right in the process of reclassifying and doing sightability surveys on those herds. So to know exactly how many critters we lost, we still haven't been able to quantify that exactly. Um, we had collars on some focal deer herds and because they were isolated geographically where those deer were, some of the collar data suggests we lost even more deer, like up to 80% of our collared ones, but that's not reflective necessarily of the entire herd. So we're thinking it's about 50% of the pronghorn herd 
and somewhere close to that with our Wyoming range deer as well. And I did run my answers past my biologist, but this is something that we have been talking about at length in the department um, ongoing. We've had tons of questions and inquiries and, you know, quite frankly, people could see the death and the devastation on the landscape because there were dead critters everywhere. Um, and that's something that nobody will ever forget. And as a wildlife manager, it just, it's, it's terrible to see, but we cannot control the climate. So on, in response to that, some of the things that we're doing to help these herds and species was number one, we did not sell tags to hunt does and fawns. So the reproductive units of our herds were left, um, untouched. We did not sell those doe fawn licenses. We cut our antelope license quotas by 50% or more across the board in Southwestern in these areas where the antelope really had a tough time surviving the winter. Um, our deer season, a, a lot of those were in general deer hunt areas. So we shortened the season. A lot of places it was only six days and only like one of those was a weekend day. And then there were antler point restrictions um, that further restricted the amount of deer that could be legally harvested this fall. And we even removed, um, we used to let youth hunters take any deer where there were um, you know, maybe a buck only license and they were not allowed to harvest any does this fall and previously they would have been able to. So we really protected our reproductive animals in those units. Um, other things we're doing that will have a more lasting impact are improvements to habitats. You know, the better condition the habitat for the deer can be in, the better um, set up they are going to be to survive these harsh winters. So we're always looking at opportunities to improve the forage for all the wildlife that we manage. But we're also working really hard to remove barriers to these animals that are moving across their landscapes, especially in the winter range. And so we already have winter range closures for a lot of these where these animals are their most vulnerable and trying just to survive. We've also completed just this year the dry piney wildlife crossing, which is a stretch that runs between the barge and dry piney Wyoming right through the heart of the Wyoming range um, winter range. And we were able to build a, with YDOT, our Department of Transportation, um, a pretty substantial, I think is about 17 miles of high fences and eight underpasses to help facilitate movements and reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. And we're, we're doing that across the state. We have got a lot of momentum and there's a lot more um, wildlife crossing projects getting finished and getting um, secured. We just YDOT and Game and Fish got a $24 million grant to work on wildlife crossings for the South Kemmer project, which the road runs from I-80 at Evanston up to Kemmer and through the heart of really important deer and pronghorn habitat. And they're going to be converting a power plant from coal to nuclear in the coming years. So really 
um, getting that set up so that those animals aren't going to have to compete with that increased traffic is going to be very helpful for humans and animals. Um, the last thing that we're doing is um, we've already designated three migration corridors for mule deer, and we're in the process of identifying the sublet pronghorn migration corridor. And really what that does is if those are designated, um, it really gives the state and the department more control over the timing and pla placing of service disturbing activities. So it helps us have a little bit more teeth to regulate when and where certain things can happen. Going back to my question from earlier, you know, you talk about like the department, the commission, the legislature, when it comes to reacting quickly to a rough winter, like the recent one, and making these changes regulatory, um, such as, you know, no doe font harvest, is that, that comes from the commission then? Um, well, it started with the department. So you can think of the department as our field personnel. So those are your biologists, your game wardens, all the boots on the ground. And then our commission is kind of our oversight committee. Um, they're all appointed. And then the legislature, of course, is elected officials that write the laws for the state. Um, these came from the department and also... There were a lot of changes. I mean, we cut our quotas and then we cut them again. And some of that is in response to public pressure and other things. But um, it comes from the department up and the top down. And I think we even did like an emergency regulation change to further reduce quotas after we had already set them in the April commission. And always, you know, that comes from the department to the commission, and then the governor ultimately has to sign off on those as well. Gotcha. So driven by the department, but still has to go through the commission. Yes. Got it. Okay. What are some other examples um, of just successful game management um, in Wyoming? Uh, again, I just, uh, I don't want to gloss over hard issues, but again, the, the, the negativity and complaining gets a lot of airtime. <laughs> I don't know that some of sure. the, the good things get enough airtime. So I know that's open-ended, but just to help highlight, I mean, you already mentioned so much in there about, you know, migration corridors and obviously uh, changes in um, hunting pressure, essentially. But uh, what are some other examples of just of, you know, conservation success within Wyoming? I think that one really shining example of our wildlife management, um, you know, after wolves were reintroduced into well Yellowstone and then removed from the endangered species list, the state and the department have been charged with managing wolves. And it, what a unique opportunity really to start from ground zero, from zero wolves, and then be able to pretty aggressively manage them to keep them around the national parks um, and then with our trophy management zones to keep the populations at an acceptable level. And if you ever have time to talk to our wolf biologist, it is really amazing how well we've been able to manage them and keep them at, you know, the breeding pair level or above that while still allowing hunter opportunity and also, you know, two thirds of the state, they're classified as predatory animals. So that really helps our livestock producers 
be able to take action for themselves when they're dealing with predation on their animals too. So I think our wolf management um, is one example of a really successful operation. Um, some other really neat things, one that's unique to Wyoming is that our black-footed ferret and um, they were believed to be extinct until 1981 when a ranch dog brought one to his owner's house near Matitsi. And because that ranch dog found that ferret, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was able to start captive breeding them. And now an animal that we thought was extinct, there's over 400 of them alive in the wild today in eight different states, as well as in Canada and Mexico. Um, they do remain on the endangered species list, but we do have successfully reproducing wildlife, wild populations in Wyoming. So that is something that's super unique and really cool. Um, Black-footed ferrets eat prairie dogs, so the fact that we can keep an animal alive that survives on something that's mostly a nuisance is really cool. Um, uh, I mentioned the wildlife crossing, so I won't go into detail about that, but really improving our road safety for animals and humans. But the other one that I really wanted to highlight is our Aquatic Invasive Species Program here in Wyoming. It was started in 2010. And to date, we have not detected zebra or quagga mussels in our state, which is one of very few that are left. And every day we can keep those out of the state is a success. So very good. Shifting gears, I know this is gonna be like a tough question. This this alone could be podcasts for hours and in, in different states, but what can you speak to in terms of uh, point creep, if you will? So um, obviously, as there's more and more opportunities each year to get points, and then as we started by saying, even over the last 10 years, like Jennifer, you noticing an increased demand, more and more people are part of the pool, points become, you know, less effective in a way. Um, I don't know if you can share, like, is this an internal con concern? Is it something that the department talks about or the commission or the legislature? Just what can you tell us about anything that Wyoming has on the radar in terms of point creep? Or if, you know, that's a that's a term that hunters use. I'm not sure if you guys would use that internally, but anything along that topic? So that's an interesting question. A year and a half ago, the governor of Wyoming created a Wyoming Wildlife Task Force to look at different licensing issues. And some of that revolved around high demand for licensing, licensing structure, those quota allocations that I spoke of about changing from 80, 20, 80, 75, 25, depending on the species, um, that allocation preference points, that was a topic that that task force spent 18 months talking about different licensing issues. They also talked about some other things um, as well, but um, you are asking about point creep. And so that was a major topic at that task force, as well as some recommendations that came out of the Wyoming Wildlife Task Force that were presented to either the commission or the Wyoming state legislature, as we spoke about. And, and one of those things that did come as a proposal from the task force to our Wyoming state legislature that would have 
changed the preference point system for moose and sheep was to go to a bonus point system. And so I just want to make it very clear that did not pass our legislature. So that could be some of the confusion on preference points, bonus points. But that task force had recommended making a change to the preference point system in the bighorn sheep and moose to give customers a better opportunity to draw a license who maybe don't have maximum points. And so they did look at that and had made a proposal to the Wyoming state legislature. But as we previously spoke, that's a governing body of elected officials. And that did not pass our Wyoming state legislature. And that is something written in state statute. And so without that passing, we were not able to go to a bonus point system in those two species. Another thing that will change drawing odds, as I mentioned, there was a fee change made to the special elk, deer, and antelope, which is also a recommendation that came out of that Wyoming Wildlife Task Force that did pass our Wyoming Game and Fish Commission as a regulation change. And that will likely impact the drawing odds for those special licenses, as well as the drawing odds for the regular pool. So with that fee increase, there's likely going to be customers who no longer participate in that special draw based on that fee increase. And so it likely could um, increase the chance of drawing in those special draws if the customer is willing to pay that premium price. What that's going to look like, we don't have any idea based on not having applications. So I won't know what that's going to look like till we actually conduct a draw and see what that looks like after the 24 season. But if those customers are not electing to participate in that special draw and drop into that regular draw, then that also could increase the drawing odds for those regular licenses in those areas. So it's always a fluid situation. As I mentioned, there's a high demand for our resource in Wyoming, and we recognize that. And I just encourage people to definitely look at the drawing odds and and know that there's many areas in Wyoming with great resources, great hunting opportunity that take less points or no points. And so I know that's one of the things everybody has their highly coveted area, but there are other areas in the state of Wyoming that have great resources and great hunting, and there are opportunity to hunt in Wyoming. What what was that increase on the special draw? Do you know the numbers offhand? Yeah, so I will give you just the total price. Um, it did increase just the, the special portion of that license, but the non-resident special elk will now be $1,950. Um, so previously it was $1,258. And then both the deer and the antelope for the special fee will be $1,200. Yeah, I, it, again, I, I feel like wanting to ask follow up questions, but it it also goes back to like even that um, that task force. Like, I'm curious, why did they recommend bonus points specifically for those couples trophy species and not across the board? But again, you can't answer that question because that was a 18 month deliberation, not by you. <laughs> so that question, because I was at every one of those meetings presenting data, 
And so really that came back. So during that Wyoming Wildlife Task Force, they had meetings almost every month. Um, There was like two months hunting season that they didn't have a meeting. And they had a very public process through that whole task force. And they received thousands of comments, public comments from constituents in Wyoming, across the U.S., um, others, you know, we have hunters from Canada, Mexico, all across the world. And they received a lot of public comment to leave the elk, deer, and antelope the way it is. And so that is why they chose not to forward that was based on public comment through that process. Conversely, there was public comment wanting to see a change in um, moose and sheep just because of such small numbers. When the preference point system was implemented for moose and bighorn sheep, the number of licenses that the department was issuing each year was much higher than it is today. And so through that public process, they did choose to recommend moving that and recommending to the Wyoming legislature that they approve a bill that would have changed that to a a bonus point system. But as I mentioned, that did not pass our Wyoming state legislature. And so we still operate under the preference point system. Awesome. Thank you. It's been so good. I, again, want to thank you guys uh, for being willing to do it, for taking the time to do it. Um, Is there anything else before we close from from your end, either of you, that you would just want to make sure we let hunters hear about in this conversation that we didn't hit on already? I think I just want to reiterate, um, get on our website and check out the Hunt Planner. And if you find yourself a little bit overwhelmed by all the information that's on there, give one of our regional offices a phone call. And in five minutes, we can kind of show you how to navigate that hunt planner and then turn you loose because there is so much really great information. Um, I think we put a, 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 a lot of effort into keeping that up to date and super as helpful as it can be. So just encourage you to use the resources that we are um, investing in as a department. And I can't say enough good things about the hunt planner. And if you're having frustrations with the website, give us a call. We're happy to help you figure out where you want to be. And once you get it, it's really good. So And I would just echo what Regina said. We have wonderful resources on our website, The Hunt Planner, and we're always available to answer your questions. And the second plug I'll make is get your applications in earlier, plan early, don't wait till the last minute, which also includes like don't wait till the last week. Um, A lot of our customers wait. So the earlier you can get a hold of us, as we mentioned, the more easier it is for us to help you um, because our call volume does drastically increase. So, but we have lots of resources. And I also want to just thank you, Mark, for taking the opportunity to have us on this podcast. The more times we can get our information out, our systems are complicated is great. So I wanted to thank you for that as well. Absolutely. Well, that is a wrap, guys. Be sure to check out the link in the show description where you can go to the Wyoming Game and Fish website and check out the resources that were mentioned in this show. A special thank you to Wyoming, their Game and Fish Department, and Regina and Jennifer directly for taking the time and being willing to join us for this conversation and to answer your listener questions. 
Stay tuned for more. We have other states coming as well as more of our usual podcast episodes. Be sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive those future episodes automatically for free. And you can always go find all episodes, including our back catalog of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. And you can search by keyword or browse by topic by going to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. And finally, if you have anything for us, a question, suggestion, or anything like that, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com and we'll talk to you soon.